Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. I'm Matthew S. Fox, one of your hosts. I am joined, as always, by Jacob Leachich. And today we are talking Harry Potter. Um, we have been really interested in the Harry Potter universe for quite some time and wanted to kind of dive into a number of the questions that the, the larger universe uh, brings up. Uh, I'm sure in the future we're going to go deeper because this is a, a universe we're going to uh, visit many times. But today we're going to kind of do an overview and talk about some of the kind of general questions that I think have always been on our mind and been on the mind of a lot of our fans. Um, and we are sending this out in particular to uh, one of our um, younger fans who I know has been wanting us to do a superhero ethics episode. And this will be a completely PG uh, PG rated episode, particularly so that uh, younger fans can listen. So for any parents out there who have thought, you like our show, but don't really want to expose this to kids, um, this will be a PG episode. Um, so with that, Jacob, how are you doing today? I am doing very well. I am very excited about an episode where I have a literal jar next to me that I hopefully don't have to put anything into. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm I'm uh, very interested in, in exploring some of this topic. It's, it's something that you and I have talked about uh, at length outside of the context of one of these um, episodes. But one, we sort of like shelved the conversation and went, hey, let's not go fully into this because then we won't have anything new to talk about when we when we do an episode. So really excited to get into this. So there's a couple of topics I know we want to talk about. We want to talk about um, the house elves and Hermione's uh, work with them. We want to talk about the houses and where that goes. Um, we're definitely going to talk about J.K. Rowling herself and some of the concerns that some people have about her um, and, and a kind of a more general topic about how we relate to um, the work of artists where the we may have concerns about the creator themselves. Um, but let's start with the topic, Jacob, that I know you had mentioned, uh, which is how people in the Harry Potter relate to the Muggle world, especially about this idea of secrecy. Yeah, so this is something that for me uh, always in the in, in the early books, right? Uh, it always came across to me as sort of a oh, that's cute and fun, and this is why, like, this is how we can accept that maybe this exists in our world. But as we kept going, the the acts that the Wizarding world takes in order to protect their level of secrecy and protect uh, themselves from the muggles learning about them, mm -hmm. uh, especially given the some of the reasons, always struck me as really, really troubling, right? right. It's not something I was really on board with. Uh, and the, the big reason for that is this idea that uh, it seemed to me that the agencies that they had, you know, the different, uh, the different, official agencies like the muggle uh, what is it called muggle affairs agencies and whatnot uh when they were dealing with the the non-wizards of the world yep. um one of the things they apparently had license to do was just altering people's memories changing things about their life or, or their brains in order to uh eliminate those experiences they had which they could only have uh described as supernatural and that just right. mm, it just always rubbed me the wrong way yeah, I, I definitely understand that concern. Um, I, I think there's – the way that it's handled, especially especially in the later books when um, there's that wonderful scene, a couple of scenes. I believe it's in book six. Um, yes, yes, I know it is in book six where we meet the muggle prime minister and, and the that person has to deal with the minister of magic. And th I, th that scene was presented in a very funny way. But it also felt incredibly bullying um, from the Minister of Magic in terms of the way they were 
not really saying to the Mughal prime minister, hey, how do you best want to work together now that you know this new information, but really just saying, here's how it's going to work. Here's what you've got to do. You have to take the secret to your grave. Live with it. Yeah, right. And it's that it's that kind of exactly to my point, right? It's that kind of sort of authority, authoritarian uh sort of dictating how it's going to be from the wizarding world to the muggle world it is it's very consistent that that's how they they interact right and the the premise behind it as well as supposed to be this whole like protecting wizards from what the muggles can do to them which sort of like the reason why he's having to talk to the prime minister in book six is because you know there's a real threat to the muggle world now from the wizarding world and so it's like the muggles can't effectively protect themselves because uh because the wizards need to protect themselves from the muggles again it just i understand the argument i've seen it in other forms of fiction where it's all like well if you if if you know about the wizards like we see it in um in harry dresden uh where if normal people learn about wizards learn about magic then you know the nations will quickly jump to the to the nuclear option or to salem witch trials or things like that uh but really it seems like the wizards hold all of the power right right well and so that's the question i I think you raise a really good point there because like on one hand i feel like this is similar to the prime directive conversations we've had before where granted magic is not technology but for all intents and purposes in this kind of discussion it is and i think that there's so I, th- I think you can make a comparison with the Prime Directive of you have a a people who are of a higher technology level, of a higher magic level, deciding what is best for everybody else. And when these things are framed in terms of we know what is best for the muggles, we're going to do what is best for the muggles, I get really squicky about it. Um, but I do think – and I, I'm, I'm rereading book four and, and um, just uh, of, of happy coincidence when you, when you mentioned we want to do Harry Potter tonight – um, and, and in that book, as well as in a couple of the other earlier ones, it is mentioned that this isn't done just for the protection of the wizards. It is all uh, just for the protection of the muggles. It is very much done for the protection of the wizards because they came to realize that, you know, muggle society would be very scared of wizards and, and would take violence against wizards. And that, um, you know, later, uh, Voldemort really tries to kind of inflame that passion and to remind people like, we don't have to be scared. They should be scared of us. But but and, and and who knows, you know, who started the ancient wars between wizards and humans? I'm not saying you can blame either side. But I think I I guess here's my question for you is does the fact that the wizards have legitimate reasons to be scared of what would happen if the Muggles knew about them, do, does that give any more justification for it? I think uh, it's a great question and it's it's one that um I think unfortunately uh is strongly connected to a similar thing we're hearing in this day and age uh, with respect to uh, refugees. Not quite the same argument, but I feel like it's a similar line where if you allow um, your fears about what someone might do or what people might do to inform how you treat them, then I feel like you've already lost, Mm. right? And I guess that's just – it's sort of my stance, and it's, it's very broad, and it's not accepting for any nuance, which, yeah, okay, there may be situations where it is warranted to have this level of secrecy, right, or, or to 
not allow everybody necessarily to know that these things exist because when when people in aggregate get afraid of something sort of the reverse of the argument actually right if if everybody suddenly knew that wizards existed uh now they might treat every wizard as you know a a walking lethal threat and respond accordingly but treating muggles as you know a well we can't let them know because of the possibility that they will react with violence right is I think it's the same problem, right? Their concern is the very thing that they're doing to the muggles, basically, right. or I, assuming I, of the muggles. I, I, I think that's a good point, especially in terms of um, – I, I like your refugee analysis uh, uh, example, especially because in both cases you have one group of people who see another group of people as a threat in large part because of a sense of perceived inferiority by those people. Um, one thing I think that the book the, – the book's – remind us of but also don't go too deep into in some ways because they don't want us to hate the entire wizarding world is reminding us that well yes the slytherins uh, and we're definitely going to talk about the houses that the slytherins are far more racist towards non-muggles than any towards uh non-wizards than anyone else but then on some level everybody is like the weasleys are really supposed to be very much outliers for just his um you know Arthur Weasley's obsession with and love of the mar- the Muggle world. That's not just a non-Slytherin thing. That's a most wizards look at him pretty weirdly. Um, so I think that's a good point because I I, w- I was listening to this thinking, well, but they have good reason to be afraid. But you're right that a lot of that fear maybe comes from their own racism and their own perceptions of you know what might happen. Um, I guess it's a hard thing. It, it kind of reminds me a lot of the discussions about the telepaths from Babylon 5 because mm-hmm. as much as I think I, I understand that perspective, when I look at humanity today, I have I have trouble thinking that if all of a sudden we realized there were wizards and they ha- did have this incredible power and – and here's kind of the problem of like once you keep a secret, it becomes harder and harder to not keep it because now you have to not only admit to the secret but to having kept it secret for so long. Mm-hmm. Like if not only did we find out that there were wizards all this time but also that the wizards had been mind-wiping us and controlling us and doing all these things for hundreds of years, I would like to think there would be some peaceful way of that being resolved. I'm not sure that there would. Um so I admit I'm really torn here because it's like every argument, you know, is making a lot of sense because everything you just said made total sense to me. And then though, as I, I start to think about it more, I start to think, I, I, the the wizards are acting out of so much fear, but I'm not sure that fear isn't justified. Right. Part of this is they made their bed, and I feel that they should then have to lie in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I, I'm, I'm, you're, not, you're not wrong. It's a li- there's a little bit of sunk cost fallacy going into what you're saying but there's also some legitimacy to what you were saying uh right because there is this uh there is this cost that they now have to eat if the wizarding world suddenly like had to had to decide you know like flipping a switch being like hey here we are everybody and given you know they are outnumbered they make they make a very clear point of that, that they're out, they are outnumbered and that they didn't really want to, you know, suddenly bring on a war just because they have to admit a bunch of things that they've been doing over the years maybe weren't the best. Right. And it becomes even more of an issue uh, when you deal with the fact that you can have people who have wizarding talents that aren't born of wizards, right? Yeah. And so, like, you have this whole 
sort of like once you at least the world as it is presented to us is once you evidence that ability you don't get to decide you don't get to choose which world you are a part of mm. right and that's something i have real trouble with uh, unlike with the Psychor, where you technically do have a choice, they're just all bad choices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's either you can uh, go on these drugs that completely ruin you and most of the time are going to make you, like, suicidally depressed, or you can, um, right, or you can uh, go to prison, right? That's a choice, apparently. Right. Or you can join the Wizarding World, in this case, join the Psychor. Uh, those first two options don't exist. I'm not saying it's a bad thing that they don't exist, but. I, you don't see a uh, – the only things you hear about are the people who, you know, don't – who, who want to remain part of the muggle world. They get like – you know, they they don't get access to a wand. They can't use their power, right? right. Or they get they're, – they're still subject to the law enforcement of of that world. Right. Yeah, it's a good point. And I'm I, – I think as I think about it, I, th- I think you, you are right that there is – <clears throat> there is an extent to which that fear shouldn't be the justification. I think I think where I come down more than anything is oddly I'm being reminded of um one of my favorite role playing games, which I know you're also a big fan of, Vampire the Masquerade. Um and in Vampire the Masquerade, um the name of it, The Masquerade, is a reference to the fact that it's a game based about vampires who live in our modern world who have to do a version of hiding, kind of a similar thing, and that they do have all sorts of shadow influence over the humans, um, but that they have to stay in the shadows because, as they understand it, um, if humanity found out about them, humanity would hunt them down and, and destroy them. And in many ways, the masquerade is similar to what the wizards are doing. And in many ways, it is much morally worse because they are being much clearer about their you know, attempts to manipulate the human world for their own purposes, and... But in some ways, I find that I am more sympathetic to the vampires than to the wizards, because the vampires don't make any claim that they are doing this for the protection of the humans. They are very clear they are doing this simply for their own survival, and so that they can flourish at the expense of the humans. Um, And I guess I feel that's where I am kind of with the wizards, is when the Everything you're saying, I 100% agree with, especially when the wizards are are saying that they are doing this for the good of the muggles, for the sake of the muggles. Because that's when I'm like, guys, this is this is prime directive nonsense 101. This is cultural imperialism. You are deciding for another group what is best for them, and you don't get to do that. Um, and and this is one of those times where I'm not quite sure where J.K. Rowling is attempting to show a moral gray area or is just not is kind of a lazy writer because it seems like she bounces back and forth between whether this is being done for the good of the muggles or for the good of the wizards um and i i kind of feel like i'm more okay with it the women with the wizards are saying look this isn't great for the muggles but it's what we have to do to survive when they're saying we're doing this for the good of the muggles that's when i really roll my eyes yeah, and to, to that point, uh, and I again, like, I don't think you're wrong either. To be clear, uh, I, I have a stance on it that I feel is is ethically sound, but it again, it doesn't really stand the test of, of each individual instance we get in the books of wizards and muggles interacting. Right, uh, it is fair that <clears throat> they have laws about when wizards do things to muggles, and they're very you know they're very strict about that. 
um, they're strict with their own people about that. So at least in that case, they can make the argument that they're logically consistent right. about wanting to protect the muggles uh, because they say you can't like using magic on them is the worst thing you could possibly do. Now, that being said, they do it themselves in order to correct for it. So, like, that's a whole... Some people get to break the law and some people don't that I'm not super into. Um, and we were going to talk at one point about the... Uh, and we did on a, on a previous episode, if I recall, about the unforgivable curses, about that yep. a particular concept. Uh, not something I think we need to get into tonight, but suffice to say, um, there's this idea... And, and I think... When, when we're talking about the the writing in particular, I think it's it's okay to give a slight allowance for the fact that the the fiction grows with its audience over time, mm -hmm. but because of that, there's some things that are established early on that when when you start to apply, uh, you know, a young adult or an adult, uh, I uh, scrutiny to. Uh, in terms of uh, adult fiction or young adult fiction scrutiny to it sort of doesn't stand it doesn't doesn't pass muster right, right. um uh, because originally the these were things that you accepted as a conceit so that so that the fiction you could you could believe that this exists in our world and we don't know about it right um because that's fun so let and, me ask you it this way if we were to say that at this point in time there is no safe way for the that there would be too disruptive for the wizards to just all of a sudden be like, "Hi, Muggles, here we are." Um, maybe that's a long-term goal to be worked for, but in the meantime, do you think there is a a a more ethical or a better way for the wizards to handle this question, where they do get to keep the secrecy but are not being quite as terrible to the Muggles? I mean. One of the best ways, but this is, you know, this involves a lot of buy-in from all of the wizards, is to actually go full isolationist and be Wakanda, mm. uh, right? Where they, in order to, if they were really interested, if they wanted to make sure they could protect the Muggles, one of the best ways they could do that is to make sure that no wizard can actually affect them. Uh, this breaks down as soon as somebody who is of Muggle birth... Uh, manifests wizard's talents right and now it goes out the window so i guess it doesn't quite work <laughs> um like so yeah it, it's it's a tough question i'd love to be able to solve it uh but i don't think you can because mm -hmm. i think that any solution that you come up that you come up with um either has a more imperialist slash colonialist bent to it which i'm obviously not going to be on board with if you listen to any of our previous material and if you haven't yeah i'm not on board with that uh or it's going to not do enough right and it's going to be about what they already have so i think it's it's a difficult problem to solve and perhaps that's why uh what is in place there isn't always logically consistent because it's trying to have like a a big broad stroke solution that when you when you start to look at the day-to-day -day doesn't really work yeah, I, I I think that's true. I I do like the isolation the isolation idea, especially since they've established that things like Hogsmeade or like where the Quidditch World Cup was that it's possible to use magic that so that the Muggles just never kind of stumble into those areas. And right. taking my sort of magic and <clears throat> vampires idea from before, unlike vampires, wizards don't actually need humans for anything. Um, 
but you're right. Then there is the whole concept of the Muggle-born and how that all how that all happens. Um, it's it's a good question, and I I think it's one of it's one of many where I feel like I I wish the books had been able to go a little deeper. But you're right because because so much of the world is established when they're being written for younger and younger audiences, and so they really have to paint with very broad brushes. Um, and, and I guess she, on some level, didn't want to undo things she had created when she got to the later books. Um, but it is, it, it is one of those times where I feel like the author is telling us that the, the, the actions of the characters are noble when it really doesn't feel that way. Because I feel like, especially, I, I think more than anything, what concerns me is when one culture starts to look at another culture without any respect, you know, starts to look at them as lesser than. And and granted, I'm sure it is very difficult for wizards to look at Muggle society and not see them as less than. But, um, like, even, even someone like Arthur Weasley, he loves Muggle society, he adores Muggle society, but he is incredibly patronizing towards Muggle society. Um, and his... His his perspective almost seems like you kind of you know you think about like the the awful stereotype of the American tourist who goes off to Africa or or somewhere like that and says you know oh you wonderful people with your local customs this is just so quaint like that <laughs> that's a person who loves that culture but is also being incredibly racist and I, I, maybe I'm wrong here but that that's kind of the feeling I get about Arthur Weasley and. Yes, I, I don't disagree. Actually, I got I got a similar impression uh, to you, and I think it's a great point that you raise, and it's one that we can, like, if we really wanted to dig deep into this, we could look at where J.K. Rowling is from, and the kinds of positions that uh, that particular nation has taken over the years, and apply some, you know, maybe not so not so uh, pleasant uh, analogies, right? Right. To this, it's as we both said it's very it's a very imperialist way of looking at things uh from someone who's you know ostensibly part of the british empire and i mean let's be clear I, I i and i'm sure you agree with this but i wanted to make sure our fans know i don't think either you or our are either you or i is saying that if an american had written this that it would somehow be free of imperialism and colonialism <laughs> no not at all um, not at all i'm just saying but, that it is partially possibly more part of the uh the tacit cultural zeitgeist something that somebody might not even realize yeah right no because I, we I, have I, that as americans right we, there are certain things we take for granted as and when when we go and look at our own media and we go man why does everybody shoot everybody else in the face all the time Right. No, I, I think that's exactly true. And I also think it, it – it, but it raises also a good point, which is we are starting from the assumption that wizards should treat muggles to some extent as equals, at least as ethical and moral beings, even though they are – they do not have the same power that wizards do. Um, is that a fair ethical starting point? Like – I, I, I think the answer to this is no, but I do want to at least explore it a bit. Like, is there – no, I mean, actually, I, 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 even as I wonder, is this a question worth asking, I, I think there's no way to look at this without it just being rank racism of the worst kind. And so it's probably not even a question worth asking. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was going to be my response, so I agree with you. Yeah, but, no, and it's – But, but I, you can understand where they're coming from, right? It's just – it's wrong, but there's a logical – progression 
that they're that they're going off that just ends in a place where they're i guess they're, it's not self-aware enough right they're not self-aware enough right and i think that that's i think it's fair to name that that's part of i mean one reason why these books are so popular is that in them the characters get to look at the muggle world and say this world is stupid and terrible i get to go live in a better one and for a lot of the fans, one of the reasons why they love the books, myself included, is that we can say, this world is stupid, I want to go live in a better one. You know, it's it's the <clears throat> all the people who said, you know, why hasn't my owl come for me yet? I want to get out of the muggle world and go to Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, Hogwarts seems like an incredibly dangerous place, but that's another story entirely. Um, I mean, unfortunately, both worlds have literal actual Nazis still. Yes, so. also, also true. Um <laughs> But yeah, but I, I guess my only point was to say that, like, I think when you are writing a fantasy world where one of the major conceits is that there is this better world that exists beyond the normal human one, I would hope that there's a way to do it in which your characters don't have an inherent patronizing and racism towards regular humans. But I just I don't I don't know how that's how you can do that. Um, and I I or or even better. I, I assume that there are some works that are doing it, and I would love it if, if any fans could who know of some good ones could, could let me know, because I think that would be a really fascinating story to read, is one where it is taking place in a different culture, and a culture that is in many ways better than the, the normal human one, but doesn't necessarily have the racism and the looking down at everybody else. Yeah, I, I would love to see... like. There are better ones. I do think I mentioned it earlier, but the the Harry Dresden series is better about it. I think um, it's written for for an older audience, and uh, the perspective character is sort of more on the side of the little guy, um, mm-hmm. and so you get more of that perspective. And a lot of the times, he's arguing with the the more imperialist or or what's the word I want to use? I guess racist wizards. Because right. when you get right down to it, that is what it's about. Um, but, you know, you're, they're painting it with a different brush, but it's the same course. God, that metaphor got away from me really big. Uh, so, but yeah. Uh, yeah and, and I will say, it, it is one thing I think I, I, that is worth commenting on is one thing I have sometimes seen in works like this is where the people in the more advanced society take the position of well, we are all better than the normal people, but as long as you're one of us advanced people, we don't care what your gender or your human race or any of those things are. And so, you know, kind of like the the, the idea that sort of the human concepts of of racism and things like that fall aside. Um, I, I do think it's worth noting that as we're talking about the racism of the, um, the anti-muggle racism of the characters in... Uh, the Harry Potter world. While I don't think this was intentional by J.K. Rowling, I do think it is very clear that there is a lot of actual regular world racism that happens. Um, I mean, just the utter lack of characters of color, um, both in the books and the movies, and even in, in especially in the movies, where in a couple cases, um, specifically of Lavender Brown, the the character was recast from a black actress to a white actress when she became more important to the plot and became a love interest for Ron Weasley. Um, that's the most extreme example, but I definitely think there are others um, uh, where, you know, 
J.K. Rowling, again, being, I, I don't think she set out to say, I want to write this, this book to show that only white people can be wizards, but certainly the world she creates seems to mirror the racism of the, the world that she lives in. Right. And there there are exceptions, right? Yeah, you have the Patel twins, you have, there, there are definitely characters who are meant to be uh, of a different, uh, of a different race, right. but but it is true that our our heroes are all you know caucasian uh and all british now part of that is that it's a british school and they're all from that area uh so some of that you can you can hand wave a little bit but there are you know there's not no black people in in britain right there's not no the, the mod, modern Britain, with all the immigration that it has had, is certainly far more racially diverse than Hogwarts is. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's true. It, it's harder to, to say for sure in the books, because if you're not a, a principal character, you don't often get a description uh, right. that gives you any indication. Um, but the fact that if you look at the cast of named characters, uh, you can pick out tokens of of uh different of of non-white races but you can't say oh look at all of these uh right so like cho chang for example uh yeah that's one that i can think of that's uh, an asian character in in the harry potter story and i can't think of another one there's probably another one that i'm forgetting about uh but it's so predominantly uh you know it's very white and So that also kind of leans into it, and I don't. I, I agree with you. I don't think that was uh, intentional, but I think mm-hmm. it's a little telling. Uh, now, I will say one thing on the positive side, um, which is, and and then I think we should probably move on to the the a topic very related to racism and and these questions, which is the the the, the houses and the, the way the houses, particularly Slytherin, is is discussed in the books. But I I do one thing that I think is a positive that. The more I've done research, I, I've never heard J.K. Rowling expressly say this, but the more I've done research into the topic um, and, and, and the sort of tropes that she hits on, the more I think this was somewhat intentional, is that I do think that the Weasleys and the way the Weasleys are treated by everyone else, they are supposed to be stand-ins for Irish and how the Irish are, are, are often treated by the English. And that... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that, granted, in in modern day culture, I think in most of the world, the Irish are white, and that's that. But there certainly was a time in which whiteness and Irishness were defined very differently, and the Irish were were received quite a lot of prejudice. Um, not prejudice to the degree of of black people or brown people by any means. That's not what I would say, but certainly a degree of prejudice. And there is a school of British literature which tries to t- t- you know to talk about. Um, uh, you know, anti-Irish racism and why it's wrong. And there are an awful lot of sort of markers of Irishness that exactly hit the Weasley family. The, the you know, very large family. They have far more children than any other family in the Wizarding World. All of them having the bright red hair, the the boisterousness. The, uh, there, there's just a lot of things that to me read as very much kind of like markers of English perception of Irishness. And that the way that they are treated is very reminiscent of English racism towards the Irish. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one thing before we moved on that I just wanted to make sure, especially given a comment I made earlier, I want to make it very clear uh, when I was talking about 
you know, you could make the argument or, or see a line where um, these imperialist things are just sort of in the subconscious of the writer. I'm not saying that is at all true, and I'm not saying that people from Great Britain are all, you know, just inherently colonialist or anything like that. It's 100% not the point I was I was attempting to make. Right. Uh, more just sort of putting the idea out there that there's some things uh, historically, especially with how we tell uh, our stories of history, where, you know, we, we don't emphasize the same things. Uh, and I think it's important to be aware of that. Uh, and be aware of how that can inform our fiction and how, the fiction we produce and the fiction we consume. I, I think I think it's a very good point, and I, I'm glad you clarified that for the audience. That is how I understand what you're saying, and I, okay. I think that, it, yeah. that it's a fair point that both British culture, like American culture, like a lot of European cultures, has a good deal of racism and colonialism and imperialism baked into it in ways that affect people like J.K. Rowling and people like, I think, both of us in ways that you know, I have certainly done a lot of work to try and make myself more aware of those things, but I certainly know there are ways that I'm still not aware of. And, and, and so I think it is common for it to come out in the writings of people from those cultures. That doesn't make it okay, but I think it, it helps to understand where it's coming from. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was trying to say. Thank you for uh, articulating it better than I was in my incoherent ramblings. So, so let's move on to the question of the houses. Um, what's, what's kind of your take on, on the houses and where, and where they fit? I mean, this is the part of the podcast where we both get up on our giant soapbox, right, <laughs> and talk for a long time. Uh, no, we're, we're, we'll talk for a little bit, I think, about House Slytherin um, specifically. But generally speaking, the, the house system it has some issues, I think, uh, and some good things, too. I'm not, I'm not all opposed. Like, there's, there's this thing we like to do, right, where we like to classify people and put them in, in boxes. Yeah. Um, like look at horoscopes, right? Or or the the Chinese zodiac, right? Or um, there's at least there's way more examples of it than those. This is just the ones that I'm thinking of right now. Uh, the European four element system and, and how people for a while were identifying themselves or aspects of their personality with with each one. And some mm-hmm. still do, I think. Um, or uh, when we're looking at other fiction, right, uh, going back to Vampire the Masquerade, because I think that there's a lot of overlap between these two things, uh, the the clans within Vampire the Masquerade and how they were right. all like, they, they, we like to take a set of attributes or characteristics uh, and then sort of lump them together and say all of the people that are like this belong in this in this box, right? Right. So that you can have an, a convenient shorthand when you're talking about a person. Um, and sometimes that's, that is convenient and it doesn't have any problems. And sometimes 25% of the population of your school are apparently unabashed racists that we don't learn about until much later. And that is less okay, I think. Uh. Yeah, I, I think this gets to the heart of it. And I, I in a lot of ways, I, lo- I, I love the house system. I mean, I, I, I strongly identify with one particular house. Um, and, and I will say that it's Slytherin. Um, and that's that's something we're about to discuss because I'm about to talk about how I think this is the one part of her world that J.K. Rowling gets wrong. Um, because clearly my my identification for Slytherin has nothing to do with the racism. I, I, I think it, um, the way that J.K. Rowling writes – it 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 there it, it feel this to me is the biggest flaw in her writing, and it it raises ethical questions because it comes down to how do you view the houses? Because on the one hand, 
there is the perception she can write. The, 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 the one way to look at it is that the four houses re, the four houses reference four different characteristics, all of which can be good or can be evil. Um, you know, ambition is not by any means by definition evil. Um, cunning is not by any means by definition evil. Um, whereas at the same time, like bravery or attempting to always be a hero can very much be evil at certain times. And so on the one hand, to create the world that she did made a lot of sense. To then say that one particular house has a high propensity for wizards to go towards the evil again makes sense especially when she talks about that the particular evil that she she brings up is one that a lot of slytherins are drawn to okay i can again be there with her and understand what she means my problem is that on the one hand she writes it in a way that seems to imply that it is still only a, that that while most dark wizards are slytherin most slytherins are not dark wizards and that there are an awful lot of slytherins who can be perfectly respectable beings and and on some level, for the rest of her world to make sense, it has to be that. Because if all Slytherins were always going to be dark wizards and terrible racists, then everyone just tolerating them existing in the world makes no sense at all. But then she never sh- she shows us one professor, Professor Slughorn, who is not evil and not quite as racist, but still pretty much an awful person in many, many ways. And beyond him, every single other Slytherin we meet is pretty much a Death Eater or a Death Eater sympathizer. And it, it, it's where I think it bothers me the most because it she had this opportunity to really create an idea of that different moral perspectives can all be either good or evil. And then she completely threw that away to just make Slytherins the bad guys. And I think like 100% like exactly the points i was going to make up to and including slughorn being the closest we have to a character to to the sympathetic slytherin and even then like he's a coward and he's really only he's incredibly selfish right we have flaws in some of our other heroes but they don't go to that extreme even snape i would argue is a slytherin that's not really portrayed as 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 much of one of the good guys as uh as slughorn and neither one of them are somebody that i'm really like thinking okay there's an example of somebody from this house who you know i might not agree with everything that they say or do but they're clearly on the right side of things and they clearly don't have these terrible ideas about people and the fact that like all it would have taken was when uh, Harry was setting up his his secret society to practice defense against the dark arts because their defense against the dark arts teacher was terrible and wasn't telling them anything they needed to know, was to have like one, just one member of House Slytherin as part of that group who was like, yeah, I don't understand all of this. I'm with you. Like, I know a bunch of my, my house is crappy to you, Harry, but like, this is not okay and I want to learn. And yeah. we didn't get that. And, like, maybe there just wasn't room for it, but it. I think it's because we got so many characters from so many of the other houses, I feel a little burned as somebody who mostly does identify as a Slytherin from the perspective that she originally set the house up as, as, as right. people who are driven by ambition and by the desire to do good things or to do great things. 
Right. It, it would have been really nice to have that, or to have, <clears throat> especially to have the character who, to some extent, was willing to, you know, added something to the planning, or was willing to be a little more cunning, or a little, you know, a little bit more shady, maybe, about how they did things, but for a good goal, and helped the, the group, you know, the, the Dumbledore's army in that way. Um, especially because what I also would have liked was to see... Um, you know, it's it's funny when I when I look at the the houses today, um, and you ask me which is the one that has the more potential to be a kind of problematic person. Honestly, I'm going to say Gryffindor, because um, when I look at the damage that is done in this world, I see an awful lot of it coming from what I think of as the White Knights. You know, the people who are so desperate to save somebody that they need to keep someone else oppressed so that they can rescue them, or that they need to find a person who doesn't really need to be rescued and rescue them. Um, and we're going to get into that a little bit with, uh, with uh, 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 the house elves question. Um, but I just I, I see an awful lot of damage being done in our own world by Gryffindors, and, and certainly a huge amount by Slytherins as well, don't, don't get, and, and by Ravenclaws, and by even Hufflepuffs. Um, but, but, but to have it be so... That that every Slytherin we meet is a villain, and every every um, good guy we meet is a um, is a is a Gryffindor seems really problematic, um, especially because one thing I took note of is there are a lot of characters in the book. One thing that I like about the J.K. Rowling's book quite a lot is that there are different levels of antagonists, and that there are the Death Eaters who are very clearly just truly awful, evil people. But then there are people like, um, you know, Professor Umbridge, who is almost as bad and then very quickly becomes very happy to be part of, you know, Voldemort's world. And then maybe a level down from that, you have someone like Cornelius Fudge, who is not one, not a Death Eater by any means, but is certainly so desperate to keep his conceit and keep his belief that there are no Death Eaters that he does some truly horrible things and allows Professor Umbridge to do even more horrible things. We never learn what houses they are, you know? And and there's a part of me that really wanted to know, because I, I guess Umbridge is probably Slytherin, but, I'm pretty but sure I don't, Fudge think, I don't think Fudge would be. Say again? I'm pretty sure Fudge is Hufflepuff. Yeah, Fudge to me is Hufflepuff, and and I think that would be that would be really nice to name, you know, to be, to see that some other characters from other houses, because Hufflepuffs I think overall are great. Like Hufflepuffs are, are the, the nice ones, the the friendliest ones, the the ones who just want to you know eat snacks in the kitchen and welcome everybody. But that even that can have a a, a bad side. I think could have been a really good thing to explore. Right, uh, especially since and the reason why why I'm naming uh, Fudge as a Hufflepuff is that his his to your point. Um, one of the things he does is sort of try to stick his fingers in the ear and, and ignore in his ears and ignore a problem because it makes the world too hard for him to deal with. And I'm not saying that that's a Hufflepuff thing to do. I'm just saying that I feel like a Gryffindor would would engage with that head on. Uh, a Slytherin would also actually engage with that, but maybe from from the side. And a Ravenclaw wouldn't be able to be that intellectually dishonest. Mm-hmm. Um not necessarily it's just that's that's what seems to to fit the most for me um and i do think like again the the house system is is interesting uh sort of to your point of how we we get some of these these uh characters that we can sort of slot into these other uh into where we think they would fall and the they each have an ideology that you can see a 
oh, there's this is uh, something that can form a, a really good hero, really good uh, one of the good guys, or could form a problem. And I would have liked to have seen people from the other houses who turned out to be more uh, problematic, right? Right. Um, just to just to give us more of a, an even-handed uh, story where it's not, you know, if you're if you're a pure blood wizard born to one of the noble families, you have a just much greater likelihood of being a horrible human being. Um, I mean, then there, you know, the more I think about it, there is a, a cultural argument to be made there where, well, you're the one who's most likely to be raised with this set of ideas. Right. Right. Um, whereas, but there are plenty of, uh, of pure blood wizards who get sorted into the other houses. So it's not, yeah, I don't know. Well, and, and I think, and this is, I, I kind of mentioned this, but I think it's a point worth dwelling on further. One of the reasons that I have to believe that there are lots of good Slytherins and morally gray Slytherins, and then both good and bad and morally gray, that's both, but good, bad, and morally gray people of all the rest of the houses as well, is that if it doesn't, then J.K. Rowling's entire world is ethically completely bankrupt. Because... You're right that the the, the 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 like the Malfoys are Nazis. Let's be honest about mm-hmm. that. The Malfoys are very clearly like you know they have they make no bones about their complete racism towards not only Muggles but to the Muggle-born and things like that. And and there's there's some perception that it you know you're not supposed to say it in polite society, but that everybody thinks it and feels it. And Yes, granted, in some ways that is an analogy to our own society in which, you know, for a long time there were a lot more racists than we like to think, but they just weren't allowed to say it in polite society, and now Trump has given them that permission. Um, but it's it still feels like, you know, and, and so in that regard, like, there, are, there actually is a way in which J.K. Rowling's writing really does mirror our world, and I, I respect that. But it's one thing... To me, there still has to be the perception that not all of them are by definition going to be dark wizards. Because if that's the case, if you if you know that just like one-fourth of your population is always just waiting for the next person to arise, at which point they're going to try and kill all the rest of you and certainly mass murder all the muggles, you cannot have a moral society in which that continues and in which the Slytherins are considered to be just one more acceptable house to be at um, uh, at, at Hogwarts. Right. Absolutely. Like, there is literally no reason for, given the fiction that, that we that we get, there's literally no reason for students who get sorted into House Slytherin to not be immediately expelled. And, like, we're not going to teach you because you apparently have all of the markers of an unabashed racist. And apparently people can't change, um, which is another thing that I massively dislike about the house system, uh, about the sorting system. Because it like groups you with a bunch of like-minded people, yeah. right? Which makes you less likely to actually develop and grow and and become more accepting of other ways of of interacting or going about things. Um, and so putting all of the all of the Slytherins in one place actually makes it a higher probability that you form this cabal, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and and that's and it. <clears throat> That's one of the areas where I feel like what she was trying to do as a writer and what she was trying to do as a world builder conflict. Because mm-hmm. I think you could make a very strong argument that Hermione is Ravenclaw and that Ron is Slytherin. Um, and, or that Ron is Hufflepuff. Uh, um, and no, no, he's Slytherin. <laughs> but, but 
because of the way she sets up the world in which most of the socializing happens in the dorms of the school, you couldn't tell the story the same way. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I, I think it's one of both – like if, if Hogwarts was a real place, I would say this is an ethical flaw of Hogwarts is that it, it silos the people of these different groups so much that, and, and that their only primary way of interacting with each other is rivalry – that you never have any way to like – if the whole concept is that these four different uh, types of people should balance each other out, they never get a chance to because the world is set up in a way that they're completely siloed from each other. Yeah, there should have been – like the common areas should have been co- – like the dorms you could have the, – the actual dorm rooms you could have be separated, but the common area should be a common area, right? Where everybody could interact in order right. to make that make sense, other than just having it being the dining hall when you're in classes or between classes, like it creates this more insular environment. And sure, it makes it easier to tell some of the aspects of the story, right? So maybe it was a conceit that that we had to have, but it does make it such that. You know, I, I, and I'm not even sure I 100% agree that Hermione should have been Ravenclaw, but part of the the telling of the story was that you end up getting sorted in some ways because of where where your priorities are, right? right? And while Hermione is very well educated, right, even before they get started and continues to remain top of her class, um, the point I think was supposed to be that... Uh, you know, she was bolder or, or like absent anything else was willing to be bold. And part of that is, you know, not being afraid to show off her knowledge. Right. No, and I think that's a good point. And I, and I, like I said, it's not that I think that, that, that it's wrong that she's um, Gryffindor, but that you could make a very good argument that she Absolutely. could be also Ravenclaw. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and in some ways, again, like, and, you know, the book kind of makes a reference to that because in many ways, Harry is very Slytherin. And mm-hmm. I like that from the very start, Harry comes very close to being Slytherin. Um, and, and I will say this, this is, um, we, we've talked in the past, we, we, we sort of did it in a, a um, episode on it. We haven't fully done an episode on, on, on fan fiction. I want us to dive more into it at some point. But one thing that I, I really like about fan fiction is that fan fiction can sometimes... You know, it can headcanon and it can fix the things in a world that you think the author got wrong. And this is one area where I think that has happened the most because a lot of my perceptions of Slytherin, honestly, come from a lot of the great fan fiction I've read where the the main character is a Slytherin or a, a Ravenclaw or someone from one of the other houses who is sympathetic to Harry Potter. Um one of my favorites, actually, and I can't remember the name, and if someone else can, can remember the name of this, please let me know. But it's it, – it, if anyone has read the book um, Ender's Shadow by Orson Scott Card, who – terrible person, fully admit, and we're not going to encourage anyone to go spend any more money on his books. But if you have already read it, you know that it's a book about – it's a retelling of the Ender's Game story, but from the perspective of a person who is pretty much always in the background, but is actually doing all kinds of things – in the shadows to help make everything else possible for the main characters of the other book. And this fan fiction I wrote, read was basically about a Slytherin who was one year behind Harry Potter doing the exact same thing. That there's a Slytherin who deeply supports Harry Potter and doesn't want to, uh, the Death Eaters to come back and is constantly working to 
you know, support Harry Potter and to foil the plots of Malfoy and the rest of them from the shadows, but from a very Slytherin perspective. And and is some of the funniest parts of the fan fiction are where he is either rolling his eyes or banging his head against a table at those stupid Gryffindor heroes who could solve this so much easier if they didn't have to be so bold and brave. Um, and I just found the story both incredibly relatable and incredibly funny, but also it really gave me a much better perception of what the Slytherins could have been if they hadn't just been the enemies. Yeah, and look, that is is one of the things that we didn't, I don't think we covered a a ton in the one episode we did have on uh, on fan fiction but i think that you make a, a very good point that one of the benefits one of the good things about it is that it can allow us to explore uh the world building done by an author in ways that help sew up parts of the fiction that that we felt weren't touched on enough or or you know weren't treated with enough nuance or just were overlooked um and I think you know, even though you and I obviously are, are heavily biased uh, about about House Slytherin, I think it's also fair to say that we don't get a lot uh, about people from the other houses as well. And I would really like to have seen um, even more about you know sympathetic Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff characters and what made them unique and what made them special. We got, uh, I believe, Luna Lovegood was was Ravenclaw. Is that correct? Am I misremembering? That's correct. This? Yeah. Okay. Um, so we we got. Uh, some some token characters from each house. Cho Chang was also Ravenclaw, if I recall correctly. Yep. Um, but she's sort of. Uh, she, we, she... we never see any reason why she's she's Ravenclaw. Like we never talk exactly. about her yes, being that... super smart or. Thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to say, but somehow those words were not coming into my mouth. Uh, and, so and, yes. And, and in terms of Hufflepuff, we get Cedric Diggory. Um, who is it? And like I said, I, I'm I'm literally rereading book four now, and I've just gotten to the part of of Cedric's death. Um, spoiler warning, but you probably have read all the Harry Potter books if you're listening to this. Oh yeah, we're um, gonna spoil some stuff. Yeah, <laughs> too late. Um, but but um, to me, Cedric Diggory in the books is one of the worst examples of tell not show that I well you know. And, and for those who don't know what I mean, there, there's sort of a rule in writing that you should show not tell that you don't say this character is so brave you show the character being brave you don't say the character being humble you just show the character being humble and you know there's a line where Dumbledore describes Cedric as a fierce fierce friend and I remember hearing that line in the movie and, and reading it in the book and thinking really like he doesn't seem like a bad guy and he certainly helps Harry when Harry helps him but he doesn't by any like there's nothing about him that strikes me as like he was the best of us that he was the hufflepuffiest and the 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 most neighborly like he he just seems kind of like an average guy who's trying to be a decent person while also win a competition right and i and i wish that he had been a better example of sort of the huff, like it would have been really interesting to see as him and harry are competing what is the gryffindor approach to a competition versus the hufflepuff and, and we really didn't get that, right? But in all of this is to say that, uh, you know, the story that we have is the story that we have. And yes, it's true that, uh, you know, it would be different if we spent more time talking about these things and maybe we wouldn't have gotten the same uh, end result. And maybe they're just, it would have gone on for too long, would have lost the audience. I don't know. Uh, I didn't write Harry Potter. Yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, all, but but I feel like almost any uh, piece of media 
that I've consumed, I can level these criticisms against. And while they are legitimate, it doesn't necessarily mean the story would have made better. These are just things that I think I missed, right? I, I was hoping to get before the end of the story and didn't end up getting. I, I mean, in some ways, that's the fundamental conceit of this entire podcast is yep. you and I get together <clears throat> and talk about ethical questions in shows and movies and books and video games and, and things like that. And sometimes we talk about things that um, we thought the authors did really well. But a lot of times we talk about things where we thought the authors or the characters made real mistakes. And it can sound like we are tearing these things apart. But the reality is the only reason we care so much about it is because we love the product so damn much. I mean, I I care so much about Slytherins because J.K. Rowling did such a good job of creating this world that I love so much and pulling me into it that now I want to make it even better. Whereas, you know, there are many other worlds where there are probably lots of problems the author had, but I just don't care enough about the world to, to get that invested in it. Mm. Should you have said darn earlier there? Do we have to edit that? <laughs> I I think the word that I used is still PG okay, okay. but but perhaps okay. there perhaps there will be a, a a warning at the front of of that word being used. Sure, um, mild language. <laughs> so so let's move on to the to the last topic that I wanted to get us into. Well, there, there's sort of two more, but one more big one, and then one more that is kind of a a more meta topic. Um, but Hermione and the house elves, because mm. this is one where. I felt like on some level it was never it, – it feels like that throughout the book, Rawling is going back and forth between two perspectives, one of which is that Hermione is right and that she understands that the house elves are being treated terribly and that you know she should be freeing them. But the other is to portray her as kind of the um, – like what we would now describe as kind of white feminist of the um, – the person who wants to save someone else without actually paying much attention to whether that other person wants to be saved and is doing the saving in a very colonial kind of a way. Um, and, and there are definitely parts of the book where it seems like one of those perspectives is stronger than the other, but it's never really resolved in any way. Um, and, and I'm kind of curious, what, what's, your, what's your take on it as to terms of like what, what do you think was the – um, either what, what Rawling was trying to get us to think or, or more importantly, what you think in terms of was Hermione right in her crusade for the house elves? Well, first off, uh, great introduction into this. And uh, I, I especially like how you point out that the way that Hermione engages with the what she perceives to be the problem with the house elves and how they're how they're treated and how they're interacting with the wizarding world is very uh, colonialist is very um i know better i don't you know not not paying any uh words or attention to uh to that a culture might be different uh and that their approach to to things might be different or they might not derive joy from the same things that you do right um but i do think uh it, i do think when you when you look at how that story is told there are some there's some things i take issue with uh the first is that whenever we get these scenes uh, up until the later later books whenever we get these scenes where hermione's banging her house self liberation front drum or, or whatever she actually called it it wasn't house self liberation front was it what was it called um, uh, spew is what it starts out as spew right for the society of the protection of elvish welfare of elvish welfare that's right okay um, 
it's 100% played for laughs, right? Yeah. This idea that maybe we shouldn't be taking advantage of, of people who, like, enjoy being enslaved. Like, that whole... First of all, that whole idea is just so wild to me. Yeah. Um, and I think part of it was sort of a challenge to the reader. Um, but at the same time, it was it was a bridge I was never able to cross. Um, the idea that, oh, if you don't actually, you know, allow us to serve you, uh, to be subservient to you, that, you know, we are ultra sad, that it is... It is you know, antithetical to our being, uh, to, to be disallowed that it's, it's harmful to us. Like, are you kidding me? Right. Uh, that's amazingly bad. Um, and a, a just society, in my opinion, does not take advantage of, of a people who behave in that way, the way that the wizarding world does. And so from that perspective, I think that Hermione's, uh, end goal is just is ethically sound um i have a question of why aren't these like volunteer work sounds like the perfect place to to point the house elves to right here here's some things that that are you know good society things that are done for the societal well-being societal good that aren't serving an individual but are serving the public good or the public interest right. and if you want to help you can help in that way and you are not a slave to any one person and i think yeah, that and, that's a... and, and i want to be very clear i i don't think i'm certainly not saying and i don't even think jk rowling is saying that there's any moral justification for the enslavement of the house elves i think i right. think that the, the books are fairly clear that how the house elves are treated is fundamentally and totally wrong and the fact that they have been conditioned or bred or whatever it is to want that life does not justify it. Um, and I, I think there's some great stuff that happens, especially towards the end, where it explores like even how Sirius doesn't treat the uh, the house elves as well, doesn't treat creature as well as he should, and and the the noble role that the the house elves play. Um, there, I'm 100% in agreement with you. I I, I think what what I'm more asking about is. <clears throat> The, the way that Hermione are, – are we supposed to think that Hermione is heroic or problematic for the way she goes about trying to rescue the house elves? So uh, I think both, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and so, so allow me to, to expand on that a little bit. I think that it is heroic of her to call it out as often and as, as boisterously as she does, especially given that our main protagonist even – uh, Harry is not usually willing to go as far and is is still sort of res- reticent to engage with these points, even though I think they are ethically sound. And so I think in that particular way, Hermione is doing the heroic thing by being the person to make the statement, right? Mm-hmm. If nobody else is going to advocate on behalf of these people, then she's going to. But, right, there is that problem where she's taking she's taking that stance and and with the presumption that this is what these like she has, she has a very um sort of uh her centric's the wrong way I want to put it sort of uh uh wizard centric idea of what equality should look like for house elves and mm-hmm. what their society should be like and how they should engage with with wizards um 
And from that perspective, right, I think that that so it, it's a case where I think that her motives are sound and her end goal is sound and how she gets there. Yeah, OK, maybe not always the best. I think that it still ends up being uh, a heroic endeavor on her part. Um, but it's one that, like with many of our other heroes, not every action she takes is one that I think is completely uh, ethically sound. I guess to me, I, I am a lot more critical of her. And, and, and to me, it, it, it comes down to, I, I fully agree with you that her, <clears throat> her goals are 100% sound and that on some level she is like, I, I don't, you talked about how she wants to be sort of a, you know, an advocate for, or, or you know, uh, to speak up for the house elves. And, and to me, the problem is that she's, she's doing that, but without ever listening to the house elves and, and I, you know, it's not that I think the house elves get to say, you, you know, it's kind of like, you know, in any situation where a, a person or a people have been horrifically abused, the fact that they're conditioned to be okay with the abuse doesn't justify the abuse. But it also means that you can't just go in and say, oh, you're, you're, you're abused, you don't even know it, and so I'm going to save you for your own good. Um, to me, that's, that's an incredibly dangerous thing that happens in our society all the time. We, the U.S. government, do it all the time when we think, oh, you poor people, you can't really want to be socialists. Let's rescue you from that. Or you <laughs> poor, you know, like, you know, um, and to me, that's that's the thing that Hermione does that drives me so crazy is she she is so angry that all these wizards are telling the house elves what to do. But on some level, she's doing the exact same thing because she she never really listens to the house elves and what they need and what they want. Um, at least certainly early on in her campaign, you know, like right now where I'm reading in book four, um, you know, a number of the house elves are, are very clearly saying like, we don't want what you're saying, you know, and Winky is saying like how much, how horrified she is to be free. And Hermione is incredibly dismissive of those camp of, you know, in a very patronizing kind of, Mm -hmm. oh, you'll, you'll learn Dobby will teach you that it's better to be free. Um, and it, it, it just reminds me of, like I talked about this country and our foreign policy, but that's that's even a more extreme example than I need to go. Um, for me, as someone who worked in the nonprofit sector for a long time, it's something that that you know you see all the time, especially from white, more affluent activists who think they know best for more marginalized people and think they can advocate on behalf of people without ever really listening to their voices themselves. Right, and I think you're right there that there that's. That's the biggest problem with Hermione's approach is that she spends so much of of the early time not really paying attention or listening to what the house elves actually want. Right. And that's that is a huge problem. Right. So and I think I think you said and I think we're in agreement that uh, her her stance, what she wants out of this um, is sound. Right. The, The goal makes sense. But the approach here if i recall correctly it has been a while since i've uh since even my second read through of of the books so i feel like i remember her uh stance getting more um accepting and and trying to find uh more of an idea of understanding what the house elves want which i think tells kind of a better story in that you know when you're when you're younger it's harder to be accepting of of other ideas and in and it's it makes it such that like as you grow and learn 
uh, that's something that you can work on as yourself and be and be better at. Right. But I like definitely 100% her approach at the start is a very much a we're going to fix the problem. And I can even it's very consistent with her character to see a problem and then immediately go this is how we're going to fix it. Uh, form a plan and an active plan and kind of not pay it. It's a very Gryffindor thing. Kind of not pay attention to uh, other sources of input that might inform what what you do with that plan. I think that's a very good way of putting it. Um, I, I, <laughs> two rereads is cute. I think I'm on about six or seven at this point. <laughs> um, they're very much one of my comfort book reading. Um, but but my my memory, I, it's been about a year since I last read books six and seven. Well, I will say I read book seven quite recently, and in that one, I feel like by then she has a much more evolved position towards the house elves. But by then she's not with most of the house elves. So she can apply that position to creature and apply that position to Dobby, but she's not with she's not at Hogwarts anymore. She can't deal with most of the half elves. But I do think you're right, especially in how she relates to creature, especially even the sympathy that she's willing to have for him, even when he is being so horrible to her, that 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 shows where she grows into. Um, book six, I I think they kind of drop the topic a little bit. I don't remember her doing too much. Book five is where I remember her. What is to me the peak moment of like bad colonialists trying to save people, which is where she is basically trying to force the the house elves to pick up clothes without them realizing it. You know, when she's mm-hmm. she's making the little socks and hats and then covering them with, um, because especially to me, especially having seen what forced into freedom does to Winky and how much it is painful to Winky. For Hermione to attempt to force that onto other house elves, that to me feels just like the worst kinds of colonialism and, and that kind of the, the kind of like patronizing imperialism that happens in white savior communities. Yep. And it, it's a case where – so each of well, – this is actually one of the things I really like about the Harry Potter books is that each of our principal heroes, that those three, um, has these moments where they're not – they're clearly not at their best. Um Harry Potter mostly in his anger issues, uh, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in was it book five? Is book five the one where he just like screams at Dumbledore for a solid like three pages? Yeah, um, he just goes off. Uh, yeah, loved that moment. That was one of my favorites. Um, and then in uh, are you being with... sarcastic there? Or are you being realistic? No, no, I I genuinely loved that because yeah. I felt like it was such a realistic portrayal of adolescent angst. Uh, and yeah, to me, that's his... adolescent angst with a healthy dose of PTSD. And, yeah, it, it, and I thought it was. I know a lot of people who don't like book five because of that, but I find book five probably my favorite because of how much I find Harry not a. I mean, he's horrible to be around. And I'm not saying it justifies him, but I think it's also a very realistic portrayal of a young man going through what he went through. 100% like was about to to make that same point that it be, given what he's been through right it makes it makes total sense that that's when he snaps right that's he he stops being able to deal um and like you know some of the stuff is more petty than others of it but it you know he, he's a flawed character um ron mostly comes out in book 7 uh but he's basically flawed throughout um I have some issues with the character of Ron Weasley generally. Uh, yeah. I think he's learned the wrong things from his home life. Um, 
and is very abusive uh, in many ways. Emotionally abusive. Not physically abusive, but emotionally abusive. Oh, I mean, the um, way he treats Hermione is awful. 100%. But... Yeah, yeah. I just, that whole, it's bad. Uh, but again, each of our characters, each of our heroic characters are not perfect paragons in any way. And I think this is where we're allowed to, like, Rowling allowed uh, some, some flaw in Hermione, who up until this point is more or less perfect, right? Insofar as she's, you know, she's the one who knows everything, right? And so, like, it's it's very difficult to make a character with flaws like that unless you go into a direction of good intentions but terrible execution and not listening. Yeah. And especially if you are somebody who is used to having all of the answers, it can be a lot more difficult for you to accept that maybe what you need to do in this moment is actually sit down, shut up, and listen. Yeah, and and I think that that's that 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 to me is the best lesson that I, that I just wish there had been a little bit more of. That I wish there had been more of, her, you know, more signs of like like if we had gotten one character who became a little bit of a spokesperson for the the house elves, who she had said, okay, well, let me actually let me just sit down and talk with you more. And that maybe maybe mm-hmm. some of you know. That, 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 that some grievances had started to come out. There had been some sort of discussion. Or if she had just been doing more to sort of empower Dobby. Um, because I think that's, you know, to me, I think one of the biggest lessons that has come out of the, the, the kind of colonialism in the, in the nonprofit world is this idea of that the role of the people in power and the people in privilege is not to try and be the spokespeople, but is to try to build, you know, to to... That, that we shouldn't be the speaker, that we should create the microphone and give mm-hmm. the microphone to the person in that community who wants to speak about their own oppression. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, and it would have been nice to see more of that. Um, I agree. And that's, you know, again, that's for YA. Um, I, I don't know if... I, I would say maybe it's too high a standard to hold Rawling to, but I actually think it's not, especially because it's an issue that Rawling herself creates. And it. Um, I, I think you said it very well, and, and we sort of talked, we touched on this about how Thor was played in Endgame. I think Rawling is trying to kind of have it both ways because on the one hand, she wants to raise those actual issues. And in some ways, having the house elves push back against Hermione, I really liked because it did kind of point out that Hermione was being a little bit too much of a white knight. But then she also just played it for laughs instead of talking about it as a serious thing. And that, that I just thought was a little bit, a little bit not great. Yeah, I, I agree. I uh, don't have much more to say on this particular topic. If we wanted to, we're, we're approaching an hour. If we wanted to sort of do our wrap up. Yeah, I think we can do that. Well, let, let me just touch on quickly the last topic that I wanted to mention, because I yep. think, um, which is, which is JK Rowling, the author herself. Um, and um, this has been, there have been a lot of concerns being raised about Rowling uh, over the last few years about her having, um, you know, both some of the we, we talked about there being some sort of colonialist ideas that come out subconsciously, um, especially with the stuff that she wrote about the uh, American, um, uh, the 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 American uh, house equivalents that she wrote up when the Fantastic Beasts movie started to come out, and she sort of wrote the canon for that. A lot of that was done in some very racist ways and some very kind of appropriationist of Native American tradition ways. Um, and, and so people raised concerns about her with that. Um, more recently, there have been concerns about um, her her having a lot of kind of uh, anti-trans uh, and, and really kind of transphobic positions. Um, 
And just part of why I wanted to make sure we at least mentioned this was just today, I know there has been a lot more attention the day we're recording this to her being uh, transphobic. Um, I, I will be honest, I have not gotten a chance to read that stuff. So I, I, I can't say that I have much of an opinion on it yet. Um, but 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 enough to say that I think that there are there, there's enough things that I've seen that make me feel like Rawling is not someone I am super eager to put more money into the hands of. Um, but, but that it also just kind of raises a larger question about what do we do when the, the art that we love is created by people we don't quite love supporting. Um, and, uh, that, I think that's a big enough topic that we're probably going to have a whole other podcast about it, but I think it's worth at least diving into a little bit here, um, especially in regard to Rowling and the Harry Potter books. Um, so what, what's kind of your take on that? So... As I mentioned in our in our pre-show discussion, my position on this is continuing to evolve over time as I as I consume more media, as I learn more about creators that um, you know news that's disappointing or upsetting in some ways, or about actors or or people who are performers in other ways. Um, and I guess there's I've seen a couple of different stances on on how you treat this. Uh, and the first that is something I'm, I've been struggling with adopting and I'm not entirely sure is, is corrects the wrong way to put it. It's not, I don't think it's where I fall, but there's uh, this idea that as soon as something comes to light where uh, this creator is someone who you, you can't, you're not in agreement with on, on a major issue, right? I'm not talking about like you and you and they don't, like the same fruit of jam, right? We're talking about major, major political issues, right? Or societal right. issues, human rights issues. Um, there, this idea that as soon as that happens, uh, now the entirety of their artistic work is invalidated, right? There's nothing that they've done that can have any merit because now uh, it all is linked to this idea that we cannot support. Right. Um, and I agree with the idea that we cannot support that idea, right? Or those ideas. Uh, and if it is in the, in the particular case of JK Rowling, if it is true that, um, she is, uh, transphobic, right? That's not something I can get behind at all. Right. It's just, it's antithetical to how I view life mm -hmm. and, and humanity. Um, and so, but for me, that's like this is not something that reading her fiction um i feel is being advocated by it uh whereas i can't say the same thing of the author of the narnia books uh that's c.s lewis right right yes where some some of the beliefs of c.s lewis are made evident in the chronicles of narnia and so therefore those are i feel more intrinsically linked um right and so I guess for me, and again, it's it's a position that um, I've had to evaluate multiple times recently. Uh, there's a an artist uh, within the Magic Gathering, uh, so so who wrote who drew some of the art for some of the cards in Magic the Gathering, and some of these are ones that I have historically played with, um, and I have wrestled with the idea of well, can I even play with these cards now because they're associated with this person who has a stance I just cannot agree with and cannot support or condone. I like the stance of, I can't give this person any more money now. 
I like the, the way that you put that I feel is a, a good line to draw to say like, yeah. well, okay, no longer willing to, cause, cause now I've learned this. Now I know no longer willing to do anything to try to financially support that person. Um, but the art still exists. And so I sort of wrestle with, if I, if I look at the card art and I look at it objectively, is there anything in here that is, that is trans erasing or transphobic in any way? And I, I can't see it, but I can understand looking at it and just seeing the name and and automatically making that association. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is that I I'm still I still don't know what the the right ethical uh, decision to make here is, and I think it's worth talking about, and I think it's something we should have an entire podcast discussing where what's the right line or is there a light right line do we do can we say do we know um, yeah and I, I i think i really like the line that you drew about how much does it affect the art because to me like I, i'll give you give you this example like um orson scott card i mentioned before um i've come to understand that he is a a really you know he a, a, a very right wing deeply homophobic, deeply xenophobic um, um, person. And in a lot of his later books, that that attitude comes out in ways that make the books pretty much unreadable. But I still think Ender's Game is a fantastic book. Um, I don't want to put any more money in his pocket, so if I want to introduce a new friend or to Ender's Game, I'm going to try and find a used copy of it. Um, but I don't think that you know, because I don't, I don't think that the things that I know about the author change my love of some of the author's writings, because the the things that the author believes don't necessarily, at least if they do come out in the book, they're much more subtle. Um, to give a counterexample, um, Bill Cosby, the entire Cosby Show is built around the image of Bill Cosby and thus Mr. Huxtable being this incredibly loving, safe family man who is just this like perfect picture of affable middle class black you know happiness and wonderfulness and so much of what we learned about Bill Cosby is the exact opposite of any of that of that the idea of him being the safe father figure has so been completely destroyed that I you know I used to find the Cosby show very funny I, I don't know if I could anymore, and I don't want to try because I just have no inclination to watch that show anymore because I don't know if I could divorce those two. Right. Um, and, and I think that's kind of – in the same way I think it applies to J.K. Rowling, you know, the Harry Potter books, they have a lot of these problems we're talking about. And, and the more I come to see those problems, yeah, they lessen my enjoyment of the books, but they are still books I love. Um, I have not been as excited about the American um, – works in large part because of the um, the racism and the, the sort of uh, appropriationism of, of Native American cultures that I know were a part of them. And mm-hmm. and especially then there's so many other issues that came up with them and, and I just I, I found them to be very bad movies for a number of other reasons. Um, although but but frustratingly so because you want to talk about a great Hufflepuff um, we get that in, in the lead character in, in those movies. So uh, and a great example of non-toxic masculinity. Um, so so it's a much more complicated issue, and I think um, I, 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 I feel like, as you said, this is an issue that I'm still learning about, that I want to learn a lot more about, about her views, um, 
and 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 that it may it may get me to a point where I feel like I just and not not make it me to a point. I I feel like I'm pretty close already to a point of saying I don't want to put any more money in J.K. Rowling's pocket. Um, and um, you know, does that mean though that I I will stop being able to enjoy the books? No, not really. Um, but certainly I think it's it's worth discussing, and it's it it ties into that, and it also ties into this fan fiction question of at some extent does she still have ownership i mean she has legal ownership but like the fact that so many others have taken the world that she created and and made their own twists on it many of which are much more progressive much more lgbt friendly much more all of these things does make me feel like i i'm comfortable enjoying the world that she created even if i realize that the creator has some real problems right although I agree. There is still going to be probably, uh, you know, a voice in the back of, of your head, or at least I can't speak for you. I can speak for me that, you know, that says, hey, remember, the person who wrote this believes these things or believes, you know, and that's not to say that um, people's positions can't change. Right. Um, or can't be informed. Uh, but the there's there is something about uh like like your point with the the cosby show where it does get colored and you know thinking about it more um when when i made the comment earlier about you know i don't see anything in the fiction that is necessarily uh you know addressing this specifically um I was trying while you were talking, trying to think, you know, is that true? Can I think of anything that, that is in Harry Potter that could be interpreted as a, you know, you know, no, no, no. If you're born like this or if you are like this, trying to trying to say you're something you're not is silly. Well, we just talked about the whole house elves thing, right? You could yeah. make an argument. You could make an argument. And like, that's very icky. If so, um, because now we're using it like it's not being painted with with quite as much of an anvil uh in that particular case and so i'm less inclined to believe that that's true but Mm -hmm. as with a lot of of things in art there's a way to interpret it that that uh does lead to that conclusion and so now you know i guess i'm i'm unwilling to say that i am 100 percent correct in saying yeah there's nothing in harry potter that um is itself transphobic but like i think i i didn't remember reading anything in there that you wouldn't have to go a couple of layers deep to find um i, I mean cer- certainly i feel like and i think you're kind of getting at this and especially what you said about wanting to learn more um you know you and i as two mostly cis identifying people are probably not gonna be the best judges of that um absolutely and i think i think to me that's one of the biggest things i want to learn more is i really would love to hear from you know if if you know, trans folk, you know, do speak up and point out some things that I didn't see in the books, but that where there was a lot of, um, you know, transphobia or other issues happening in the books. Yeah, that I am, <clears throat> I am very open to my perspective changing a lot. Um, and, and in some ways, that, that's why and... kind of this is a little bit of a mini topic, because to some level, I think what we're both saying is this is something that we want to pay more attention to, and that we kind of have been thinking about in a general sense, but we're not quite sure where we're going to land on, because we know there's a lot of voices we haven't heard from yet. Absolutely. Right, and that we know that our own voices aren't sufficient for fully understanding the world, uh, which is, I feel, the right way to approach uh, our understanding and allow your understanding to adapt and be informed uh, by hearing the voices of others. But right. uh, 
absent that information, uh, I only know what I know now. And, and I'll say to that regard, when I say that there are voices we haven't heard from yet, I, I should say there are voices that I haven't heard yet. That um, It may well be that those articles are already written or being written. Um, this is a topic that I really only became, became aware of in the last couple hours and have not had the chance to do more digging on. I plan to in the next couple of days, <clears throat> and especially because of our recording schedule, this is probably not going to come out for a couple more weeks, because uh, we actually have one other episode that we have not gotten to edit yet uh, due to my, my traveling quite a bit recently. Um, but but certainly, when you all hear this, um, even though they may have become much more publicly known, uh, any fans who are more plugged in on this topic, um, please feel free to post um, articles or, or your own thoughts about it. Um, we'll, we'll do a more general thing, especially on this topic. As we're saying, there's voices I know I haven't heard from yet, and if you all help, want to help be that microphone uh, or, or be that voice yourself, please let us know. Absolutely. Um, so with that, I think it's actually kind of a good way to start wrapping up. Is there... Uh, uh, other big topics that are there kind of last thoughts you want to make? I think we, I think we've mostly covered, uh, again, like we could probably kvetch for a, a much longer period of time about, uh, how Slytherin specifically, but I think that that's not really a conversation that needs to happen <laughs> in a recording. Um, mm-hmm. but it definitely one in a car between the two of us, uh, where we're just ranting. Um, it's fun. And, and at the end, I almost did it. Uh, we have a catchphrase that I've been intentionally trying to avoid, and I think Matthew <laughs> has been as well. Uh, it's when a 24-hour period comes to its conclusion. Yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and, and Matthew challenged us uh, with with a thing that I am going to do the next time I hear uh, hear him do it, and I'm sure he's going to do it with me, where we're going to finish the Les Mis lyric. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yes, uh, when you get when you get down to it, uh, I think we've got reasonable coverage of the topic, and I think we've talked our listeners' ears off enough for this particular session. So I'm ready to go in with the the big old thank yous and and hap, uh, happy to engage with anybody who has thoughts, ideas, uh, things where they thought we we got our analysis of the how the houses were portrayed completely wrong. Uh, I'm always happy to have people tell me I'm wrong. Uh, that yep. might say more about me as a person than I would like. <laughs> but, uh, or, or things you agree with too. Like that's cool too. Uh, just happy to, happy to hear and, and listen to people who want to engage with these things as much as we do. Absolutely. We got some great feedback on the end game um, uh, episode and there's some great discussions that got started that I really appreciated. Uh, and just kind of let you know. So we have a Facebook group, uh, called superhero ethics. You can, uh, unfortunately, the way groups work, I can't just make it open. You have to ask to join. But anyone who asks, I will have you join. Um, if I, you know, you start posting terrible things, we may ask you to leave. But you know, everyone is welcome to start. Um, but uh, I say everyone is welcome. If you're a Nazi, please don't come into the group. But if you're a Nazi, you're probably not listening to this podcast to begin with. Um, and if you are, I don't really understand why. Um, Although maybe we're converting you. Anyway, I'm going way too far on that tangent. Point is, Facebook group and and Facebook page, both under the name Superhero Ethics, please join them. Um, you can also email us at Superhero Ethics. You can send uh, posts to us on Facebook. Um, you can tweet at us. Um, I am... The general Twitter is, um, face, is Superhero Ethics, and then each of us also have our own Twitter. Um, I am Caped Ethicist, uh, and Jacob, you are... Bots are people too. R is the letter R. The rest are the real words. 
Yep. Um, and it can sometimes be hard to understand exactly the, how to type what we're saying, but the, um, the, the, the links to both of those will be in the show notes, as will be the, uh, the links to all the other things I mentioned. Um, so thank you guys very much for taking part. Um, also, by the time this airs, my other podcast that I have started um, that uh, came about in large part due to Jacob getting me to watch the Orville um, and getting me to fall in love with the Orville and talk about the Orville. Um, I will now be doing a podcast with Matthew Carroll of the Marvel Cinematic Universe called the Orville Cinematic Universe um, or the, the Orville Universe. I forget exactly what we, we described it as. Um, but you can find if you search for Orville Universe podcast, it is the Orville Universe podcast. If you search for that um, on Facebook, you'll find it. Um, there will also be a link to it in the show notes for this. Um, please listen to that as well. Um, we're going to have a lot of ethical discussions about the Orville, but also just you know fan out about what a fun show it is and how much like Star Trek it is and how much we wish there was less Seth MacFarlane humor in it. Um, so please thank you guys so much for being a, a fan of this podcast. Check that one out as well. Uh, contact us in any of the ways we discussed, and uh, have a great day. <laughs>